Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and the release date for today's podcast is Tuesday, September the 19th, 2017. Now, for the 56th rendition of the Primate Cast, I sat down with Dr. Chris Whittier to talk about wildlife vets and conservation medicine. It's funny because I think a lot of people perceive that, you know, veterinarians that we're eager to get in there and we want to be manipulating <laughs> things and, you know, any chance that we have to be, you know, darting and anesthetizing animals, we want to be doing. And, and I think that that, you know, that there is, I think that's one of the challenges of trying to be a wildlife veterinarian, particularly with great apes, is it's much harder, very often the hard decision to make, which is usually the right decision, is not to do something. So Chris Whittier is a wildlife health professional based at the Cumming School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. He also has ties to the Department of Infectious Disease and Global Health, and he directs the master's program in conservation medicine at the Tufts Center for Conservation Medicine. Now, I first met Chris when we bunked together at a workshop on great ape conservation, infectious disease, and parasitism uh, run by some colleagues, mutual colleagues of ours in the Czech Republic in 2013. And it was at that time that I really got interested in um, what Chris is doing particularly as it relates to things like uh, applied wildlife veterinary medicine, which might involve things like um, wildlife health interventions, you know, which might include vaccinations, for example, or uh, targeting animals that need, that need treatment uh, following succumbing to some kind of infectious disease. And so we talk about that and some of the challenges and ethics involved in those issues. And I think Chris got started uh, in all that as a veterinarian with the Mountain Gorilla Veterinary Project, which was a brainchild of Diane Fossey. Uh, and now it's commonly known as Gorilla Doctors, and you can find that online for more information at gorilladoctors.org, and which is in collaboration with the University of California at Davis. So like the last episode of the Primate Cast, this interview with Dr. Chris Whittier was also taken at last year's Congress of the International Primatological Society, held in Chicago in August. And Chris was in town uh, joining a symposium, presenting in a symposium on grade ape health monitoring in Africa. And I took the opportunity to sit down with him, reconnect, and uh, talk about this, this stuff, conservation medicine, extreme conservation. And I hope everyone enjoys this interview on the Primate Cast with Dr. Chris Whittier. Maybe just to start out, um, can you tell us about how your involvement in the the Mountain Gorilla Veterinary Project and maybe how that that kind of thing came to fruition. Yeah, sure. So I, I was one of the regional field veterinarians for the Mountain Gorilla Veterinary Project from uh, 2001 through 2006. And the the origin of the project actually started um, Diane Fossey when she was still alive, appreciated that the you know, gorillas were having various health concerns, the biggest one of which was occasionally getting accidentally caught in snares. Mm-hmm. And so the gorillas are... You know, th- those snares are set for other animals, um, but they're pretty indiscriminate and they're pretty well hidden. And, and every once in a while, the gorillas accidentally get, get caught in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, gorillas are strong enough that when they get caught, they can break it away from whatever it's attached to. But then they're, they're stuck with that wire or that rope you know, stuck around their hand or their foot. And they can become infected or you know, they can lose their hand or their foot. Um, and so those need to be t- taken off if you know to try to save their lives. So um, Fossey requested veterinary assistance, kind of specifically, you know, for that that type of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the 
actually those discussions started just before she died, um, although the project didn't get off the ground until just after she died. Uh, and so, so that's, you know, the project started with the veterinarian on there, pr- you know, primarily to be able to respond to snares, and then it just sort of grew from there. So uh, I think uh, in your talk, you, you presented data that show, I mean, now the mountain gorilla population there in Volcanoes National Park is, is on the rise, is looking quite healthy at the moment. Yep. And um, so part of that is because of the massive conservation effort, but then part of it, uh, according to your talk and, and what people see, is uh, directly related to this project. Yeah. So, so there's a publication from, uh, I think Martha Robbins is the lead, lead author, and, and uh, the title is about sort of this idea of extreme conservation. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the mountain girls are a relatively unique situation because of the economics, um, because of you know, where, where they are geographically, the fact that you can get tourists in and out of there pretty easily. You know, there's infrastructure, there's a tourist history, uh, and a lot of stakeholders that are interested and invested, you know, mostly because of Diane Fossey and her legacies right, with yeah. sort of all these organizations. Um, and so one of the things that, that um, Martha was interested in looking at is how all those things together contribute to the successful conservation of the mountain gorillas. And they had a nice enough data set that they're actually able to look at groups where there had been veterinary care. And, and even though it's the, sort of the same population, there were years that the vets couldn't go into Congo. Right. And so they had a, they had a good you know, sample of data of essentially gorillas that were having you know, some of the benefits of being monitored and some of the anti-poaching, but not, not having veterinary access or or having veterinarians have access to right. them. And so they're able to kind of tease out that bit of a, dis- of a difference. And, you know, they you can attribute the veterinary care to about half of the growth. So the population growth is like 4%, you know, 2% of which can be attributed to the veterinary care. And, you know, and, and so... I actually had a, had a good talk with Martha about this yesterday, and I think one of the important take-home messages there is that there, you know, the veterinary care has certainly been contributing, but it should always be kept in mind that it's contributing, and it's part of a pretty complex effort that involves right. a lot of other um, pieces with the, you know, just the other conservation me- methods and the rangers and you know the investment from the, all the parks and things like that. Yeah, so I imagine. I mean, you mentioned extreme conservation, so in many ways it is quite extreme. Like in the best case scenario, you probably wouldn't need this kind of. Um, effort if you had healthy populations, but just because of the the, the, the drastically small numbers we're dealing with, it seems to be more and more necessary. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I feel like just in even in the the sort of length of my my career. I mean, not that I'm that old or that young, but you know, when I even when I was in vet school, I think there was still the sort of paradigm was you know these are wild animals they should be left alone, and and I think that's you know, slowly shifted to the realization that, yes, these are wild animals, but we're doing a lot to interfere with their lives, yeah. I mean, starting by being there in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's for research or for tourism or for anything else. And, you know, and I think that the sort of follow-up of that is then, you know, if we're interfering with them, then don't we owe them the, some sort of a trade-off? Like, shouldn't we be doing things to protect them? Mm-hmm. You know, and does that protection extend to doing veterinary care mm-hmm. if and when it might be be needed? Um, I think that the you know, my my philosophy is that you know that none of these animals are really that wild anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. not the ones that were anybody studying to any extent, because the fact that anybody's there and that we can get that close means that we've already affected their behavior. Um, and in, in addition to the fact that they, these are also, I mean, there's inherent value in these animals and being able to keep them alive, just like we do with you know our, our fellow humans and <laughs> domestic animals and things like that. There's you know there's there's a reason that we have healthcare. There's a yeah. reason that we have veterinary care. And so I think you know that it's, it you can also think of it as just another way of trying to protect them, just like keeping the forest from being cut down. Um, you know, making sure that they're not being hunted, also giving them access to healthcare. I think all of those things kind of kind of fold together and, and sort of you know can can be thought of as um, 
you know, contributing to that. Mm-hmm. So some of the more recent kinds of interventions that, um, that we've seen uh, include uh, vaccinations for, for certain things. And uh, I know you've been involved in that. So you can just run us through um, some of the, the projects. And- yeah. So, so there the, um, so the, the idea of vaccinating any of the habituated ape pop, uh, populations is it's not really a new idea. So there are precedents. You know, the chimps at Gambi were vaccinated against uh, polio in, uh, I guess it was the I think it was the early 80s. I've forgotten the exact mm-hmm. date. Um, you know, during what appeared to be a local human outbreak and some of the chimps suffered. There's actually still, I mean, just because it was before we were really doing good diagnosis and doing good sample collection, there's still a question as to whether or not that was really polio. Um, but nonetheless, it did seem to prevent the outbreak from spreading and, and mm-hmm. animals from dying. Likewise, the same thing happened with the measles epidemic and you know, with the mountain gorillas. Um, in the late 80s. And, you know, there have been vaccination efforts with the chimpanzees and Thai as well for various things. The And all those cases were really sort of reactive. You know, animals were dying right. and there was a chance to go in and sort of, you know, sniff out, snuff out uh, outbreaks and make sure that they didn't spread and that more animals didn't die. So um, with, with that sort of precedent in mind, um, there, was, there started to be discussion in the past few years about, okay, you know, one of the bad things on the horizon or that we know has affected apes very badly is Ebola. Mm-hmm. And you know, in this day, you know, I was going to say in this day and age, but we currently have a number of pretty good vaccines that have been developed, you know, for human use that, that you know, that have various stages of testing and things mm-hmm. like that. And so there started to be the question of, okay, we if we have vaccines and we and that could prevent Ebola and we're worried about Ebola as, as like an existential threat to, you know, gorillas in particular, then does it make any sense to think about vaccinating them? Yeah. And so it's, in a, you know, it's a very, it's a, you know, that's the sort of simple version, and, and uh, you know, as I discussed yesterday, it's pretty. It gets pretty complicated when you think about the fact that there might be, you know, somewhere in the order of 100, 150,000 Western lowland gorillas. Of all of those, there might be a hundred that are, you know, habituated that could be darted, and mm-hmm. that you could think about giving one of those existing vaccines to. Um, and then, you know, what are you going to do with the other 99% of them that, yeah. that you can't get anywhere near? So, but just to start to um, figure out the sort of practicality of, uh, you know, can we, um, could we dart the ones that you can get close to? And this hadn't been done yet with with Western lowland gorillas until 2011. And of course, you know, I always point out that the, I mean, obviously the reason that we have Western lowland gorillas in zoos is because people went out and darted them, you know, when they're totally wild. And so, <laughs> you know, it's not that it's, you know, there's any sort of groundbreaking in being able to go out and sort of dart and, yep. and, and, you know, get, you know, get that close to gorillas and get them darted, um, but there there hadn't been you know the, unlike the very long and successful history of veterinary care with the mountain gorillas, you know going back to '86 and, and the Virungas, um, there hadn't been any history like that with the Western lowland gorillas in, in large part because there weren't you know there weren't very many that were habituated and those that were in pretty remote areas and you know it's hard to justify thinking about having a full time veterinary presence if you've only got a handful of gorillas and there's not you know there aren't sort of common problems. So when when the, the sort of the initial thought about you know can we even go in dark gorillas that might be habituated you know there were there the challenges were there was some concern about the possibility that gorillas might simply run away. Yeah. And, you know, I guess there's a precedent for that with gorillas that had been, you know, pretty pretty well habituated and just decided to move their range for whatever reason. <laughs> and, you know, the western lowland gorillas move around a lot more than mountain gorillas, so that yeah. was that was part of the worry. But the bigger worry is that the, you know, western lowland gorillas have been hunted throughout human history. And, you know, they, so there was a feeling that they're probably going to be much more defensive and that if we go out and... Um, you know, start shooting darts at them and pointing things at them that somebody was going to get really badly hurt. And, you know, we, we 
agreed that the you know there is certainly a risk of those things, um, but there's sort of only one way to find out, and that if we did things properly and used the you know the experience and the skills that we've developed with with mountain gorillas, that we could that we could you know at least explore the possibility of doing that. So. Um, that's essentially exactly what we did with many, many contingency plans and lots of negotiations. But uh, in 2011, we, we went in to just sort of see if we could get them darted, if we could keep a vaccine cold in the field, how are they going to react? Um, and so it was a very, very elaborate project with a lot of planning. And actually, you know, and that I always like to applaud the World Wildlife Fund for being sort of bold enough to um, – kind of push the envelope on, on this with with yeah. trying to do this um but we weren't we you know we weren't about to use an experimental ebola vaccine you know uh so we did we used a measles vaccine mm-hmm. and the you know the gorillas there are they're at risk of measles which is still you know a serious problem in many parts of africa and we know the vaccine is safe and you know all, all gorillas and zoos everywhere are get, given measles vaccine yeah. um and you know for people that don't know measles is actually a human disease and so the the only risk of getting it is really from people so right. you know I, that, that's one of the vaccines that I think you can make a pretty good argument that we should be giving, you know, the, the reason that we give it to gorillas is to protect them from people and right. gorillas in zoos. And so it's not a whole lot different than, you know, gorillas that are in the wild that are being approached by people on a pretty regular basis. Yep. Um, so, so we did that in, in 2011 and, and, you know, had very, very little reactions from the gorillas. I mean, they're mostly a little bit surprised, you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody likes to get jabbed if they, you know, when they don't need sure. to be, um, but there was no aggression, very, I don't think there were even any vocalizations, you know, occasional, they, they might, you know, dash a couple yards and, and surprise, yeah. but, um, we were very pleasantly surprised how, how, um, how well it went over. And I think, you know, again, with the, you know, the very well-trained, you know, team of people that are working for World Wildlife Fund in the field, um, you know, the experience that I had from working with mountain gorillas, um, and just sort of a lot of preparation and caution that we, we were able to do that. Yeah. So at this, uh, IPS 2016, there was a nice, um, session we had on health monitoring disease and it, it was mostly restricted to the great apes and the stuff that you're involved with in Africa. But just from your perspective, I mean, how has this this kind of uh, field grown, and and you know, where do you see both yourself and and just the continuation of uh, of this kind of work going? Well, I think it, the the I guess the first thing I would say is I think the you know people have asked oftentimes about you know how how how. Um, how are the mountain gorillas going to do? What's their sort of future? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I've always said that, I, you know, there are certain political things that you might not be able to predict, but the population is growing and there's good, there's good vet care and, and there's there's a lot of investment in that that, that um, project and that work. And I think, you know, on, on those counts, they're going to they're gonna do fine. Um, but they're in a very unique situation with a whole bunch of different, you know, parameters, including the full-time vet care that makes it a pretty unique situation. Yeah. And what I, when I left the, the project, you know, my hope was that I could sort of use some of the skills and, and training and experience that I got from doing that to, to, you know, apply those skills in other places, you know, to try to help other, other populations. And, and, you know, and since that time, you know, there's, there's close to a full-time um, vet presence at Thai. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's a pretty good vet presence with, at, at Gambi and, and more increasingly more with, um, the in country, the resident, you know, locals that have been trained as veterinarians and get a little bit of additional training just because right. they generally don't get a lot of wildlife. So I think that that's, you know, that's slowly happening and it's been nice to be able to sort of be a part of kind of helping to spread some of that to other, other areas where it's needed. So I think that that's the first thing is that just the, you know, the, there is that kind of applied veterinary care that is happening in more and more places. Um, organizations are finding justification for it, finding the funding, um, and that, you know, that the capacity is being built. 
um, in some areas, still lacking, obviously, in a lot of other areas, but it, it is happening. And the other thing is that I think that, you know, by and large, the, the kind of the quality of medicine, you know, is, is improving. I mean, even in the time we were with the mountain gorillas, you know, we like to think that we improved the anesthetic protocol. We started mm-hmm. using, you know, inhalation, you know, basically using gas anesthesia in the field mm-hmm. rather than just injectable drugs, you know, which gives you a lot more control over the situation. And so, yeah. um, you know, I think a, a lot of things like that have been, uh, you know, are advancing. Likewise, you know, as, as I presented, we can also start looking at um, things like, you know, when we're when the rare occasions that we do that we deem it necessary to do things like give antibiotics for different, you know, different kinds of infections. You know, we can now start monitoring is that having any kind of a negative, you know, trade off. Right. Like, yes, it might be preventing them from, you know, getting a fulminant pneumonia that's going to kill them, but is it messing up the bacteria in their intestines and right. causing diarrhea or doing other things? And you know, now with the sort of advances in technology, we're able to to do a lot of that and answer a lot of those questions. Yeah. And so that's that's really nice and it's really gratifying because, you know, I, I you know, it, it's, it's funny because I think a lot of people perceive that, you know, veterinarians that we're eager to get in there and we want to be manipulating <laughs> things and, you know, any chance that we have to be, you know, darting and anesthetizing animals, we want to be doing. And, and I think that that, you know, that there is... I think that's one of the challenges of trying to be a wildlife veterinarian, particularly with great apes, is it's much harder. Very often the hard decision to make, which is usually the right decision, is not to do something. Yeah. And and so that, you know, and I think that that's where, um, you know, our, by and large, our profession probably needs to keep working. And there's, you know, there's a certain um, importance and, and uh, you know, sort of necessary skill and experience needed to be able to, you know, either reassure authorities that, you know, the, in most cases these animals are probably going to be fine or start to question, you know, if, if, you know, a couple of gorillas have a fight and one of them suffers mortal wounds, should he be left to die, you know, right. and, and that's that's the sort of natural progression. And, the you know, the philosophy of the Mountain Gorilla Veterinary Project has always been, um, you know, to only intervene if something is clearly caused by people or if it's life-threatening. Right. Um, and, you know, and you get into a little bit of a gray area with things being life-threatening because, you know, it doesn't, you know, you can die from pretty simple infections if you really want to. But I think there's also, you know, relatively clear things like, you know, fighting male gorillas that, that that's part of their life. Yeah. And if you're if you're intervening and saving too many of those male gorillas, then the, the adult males in the population gets out of whack and you start to have, re- you know, real problems. So I think that, you know, there's a real, there, there always has to be an understanding and it's best if this is all kind of agreed and negotiated beforehand as to you know what is going to be appropriate you know uh, decision tree for how and when um, you might step in as a veterinarian under what circumstances and making sure that you know all the stakeholders are in agreement about that okay cool well thanks so much uh, chris waiter for joining us on the primate cast and look forward to see you at the next one yeah thanks it's enjoyable (laughs) you have been listening to the primate cast a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at The Primate Cast.